2: Ah, hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. Our guest this week is an Oscar-nominated producer, Emmy-nominated director, a successful children's book author, and one of the busiest and most admired actors of his generation. You know him from hit TV shows like The West Wing, Entourage, Friends, The Good Wife, Girls, Seinfeld, as network executive Russell Darymple, and he spent a considerable amount of time in the director's chair, helming episodes of Amazing Stories, Tales from the Dark Side, The Twilight Zone, Erie, Indiana, Oz, and Nurse Jackie, as well as an Emmy nominated biopic of artist Georgia O'Keefe and 1989's cult horror feature, Parents. He's been a fixture on the big screen for an impressive five decades in popular films like Midnight Cowboy, Catch-22, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Altered States, Prince of the City, Waiting for Guffman, Deconstructing Harry, Ghost World, Capote, A Mighty Wind, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Gosford Park, which he is which he also conceived and produced. He's worked with everyone from Paul Newman to Bill Murray to Francois Truffaut to Milton Berle, and for everyone from Mike Nichols to Sidney Lumet to Steven Spielberg and Wes Anderson. Please welcome to the show a true renaissance man and an actor's actor, and a man who says he's one of the happiest people who's ever worked in showbiz and a seething cauldron of frenzy.
1: (laughs) I don't claim to have said that.
2: the talented bob balaban
1: that's so that's that's a a funny and a good introduction but a lot of it isn't really true but good thank you (laughs) which which isn't true bob the part about how wonderful i am but thank you (laughs) (laughs) welcome now bob
2: what are you so happy about
1: i I don't know whoever said that (laughs) i'm i'm uh... I have a great ability to forget when I'm unhappy. Does that make me happy?
2: Well, no, it means you get unhappy, but then you forget. Afterwards yes, I forget I was unhappy. You, <laughs> so that quote
0: from an actual interview.
2: You're going senile. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of being too old, uh, speaking of being too old to cockers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bob and I, uh, do you remember where we met?
1: We were met at the wonderful audiologist's office, Therese Deraline. I yes. think that's where we met.
2: Yeah, we met at a doctor's office. <laughs> it's and, and and we uh, got to stand there and <laughs> trade ailments with yes. each other.
1: She has very good candy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gil, you must love that.
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> I always bring my bags with
0: me. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sure Bob didn't <laughs> fill his pockets, though.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> practically
2: now now here's something frank and i think we know the answer to but by law we have to ask this so was anyone else in your family in show business maybe
1: <laughs> is, that, is it for me or for yes, frank yes
2: for, for you oh yeah no one in my family was
1: everybody yes my my dad and his seven brothers well there were seven brothers and all uh, we're very much in show business, but, but on the other side of the camera, not on the front of the camera. And I actually have a couple of cousins: one who was a terrific ad, and the other one was one of the producers of uh, Larry David show. Uh, and the other one uh, does a lot of stuff in theater. And other than that, all seventy million offspring don't do anything in show business except <laughs> me and those people. Uh,
2: and and your your uncle was. Uh... Barney Balaban.
1: Yes. My, oh, yes. You know, my dad was the youngest of seven brothers. Uh, his parents fled a pogrom in Bessarabia in about 1882 or some very long time ago. They came to a, a slum in Chicago called Maxwell Street where they started a horrible failing delicatessen. <laughs> my grandmother woke up one day and said, we mustn't be in this business. It was 1907. She went to see one of the first Nickelodeons after which she came home and she said boys we're going into the movie business and eight or ten years later they had about 85 theaters in chicago downtown and all around wow and barney was the oldest brother and my dad was the youngest uh and barney was very good friends with adolf zucker because in those days there were monopolies and paramount distributed all of their movies in chicago to the thing called balabanic cats cats was my uncle, before I was born, and then he became my grandfather later, but we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they pioneer
0: the use of, of air conditioning in movie theaters, Yes, too? they what? did. Yeah. They, they
1: had the first air-cooled system, but this was really in the early days because Uncle Barney worked at an ice company, and he would get large blocks of ice, and they would blow with a fan onto the onto the audience, and occasionally if the ice started melting too much they would they would throw they would be flinging ice water on the patrons <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about it nickelodeons in those days uh, they had no air conditioning so it was it was a, a, something that until they had some form of cooling it off they could only do this in the uh, colder months
2: and and barney worked with jerry lewis didn't he
1: barney worked with a lot of great people because uh, martin and lewis won under contract to paramount Barney replaced Adolf Zucker as president of Paramount, but he and Adolf were friends. You probably know who everybody seems to know. who yeah, Adolf Yes, was. people who listen to this show do. And he seemed to live to be about 130. Uh, and, um, and he came to Barney during the Depression in the beginning and said, this is too much, will you take it over? And Barney, who was a really lovely man, and his uh, daughter Judy is one of my best friends, uh, Barney said to him, that he would take over, but he didn't want to be the whole deal. So Adolf had to be the chairman of the board, and he remained chairman of the board until he died. And then Barney was both president and chairman of the board of Paramount and got to know a lot of very cool people uh, and put them under contract. Uh, many great directors, um, a lot of interesting people. And uh, the thing about Barney was he was very unshow businessy. He did a lot of civic stuff, he didn't like hanging around with famous people necessarily just because they were famous. And he was kind of famous for being modest but smart and strong which is kind of a lovely uh, thing to be
2: and i heard jerry lewis said in an interview that with barney balaban he never had a contract mm-hmm. they always had a handshake agreement and lewis just trusted him All well right.
1: barney had uh, real relationships with most of the people that worked for him or with him and he had a kind of a philosophy that if somebody was really good and they knew what they were doing, you should stay away. He was very strong. He took care of money very, very nicely. And he passed a rule sometime around 1938, I'm not sure. The Balaban rule at Paramount was, since movies that cost less than a million dollars don't make any less than movies that make, that cost more than a million dollars... No movie shall, be, shall cost more than a million dollars. And he did that for a lot of years and made a lot of good movies and was hated by a few directors because they, they wanted to get more money. But, but he was just being practical. He was very practical. And Alfred Hitchcock was, uh, was one of, in his stable of many people as well.
0: Wow. How many of those theaters, are st- I know the Chicago's Theater is still standing. Uh, Bob, not not many of them.
1: No, well, a lot of the theaters are there, but they became different things. Right, they, right. Uh, the State Lake Theater It was interesting. My dad's office, because he was the baby, was in the State Lake Theater, uh, and directly across the street was the Chicago Theater. And my dad could stand in his window and look out the window at his six other brothers in the Chicago, who were also on the like the fourth floor or whatever of of that building. Um, and uh, and my dad was kind of a pioneer in cable television. Because being the youngster in the family, everybody in the family was aware of what was eating away at the exhibition business, and it was television, and he got into it very early and uh, was was very smart about a lot of things, and we were very close.
0: Your hangout was the Esquire Theater when you were a kid?
1: I was an usher at the Esquire Theater yeah. when I was 15. Um and i
0: heard you say used to bring friends and dates to the theater to impress them because your name would be somewhere on well the I, I i didn't
1: I, <laughs> I was a midwestern jew and jews everywhere but especially in the midwest are trained not to stand out like don't don't brag about anything don't say anything too much about what you're doing you could only get in trouble um so i would take my dates to one of the theaters where balaban and cats would be blasted all over the front of the theater, and, she would like casually look up and say, oh, that, that's your name, isn't it? And then I had to tell my story because she asked. So that I was see. okay. I see, very <laughs> simple. <laughs> and when I was an usher at the Esquire Theater, I stood too long and got terrible blisters on my feet and had to stop being an usher at some point. But right as I was stopping being an usher, my mother had come to see me be an usher. She was very, I guess, excited about it, although God <laughs> forgot I should be remained an usher, it would have been like the scourge of the family. But but she came to see me and she told my father that my, my usher uniform was about 100 sizes too big for me because, you know, I, I'm not a very large person, but un- until I was about maybe 25 years old, I weighed about 98 pounds. And so my father had to have a special suit maker make my usher's uniform and it fit absolutely beautiful and then I got my my blisters on my feet and I couldn't be an usher anymore and I was so ashamed because I had (laughs) made everybody make me this lovely suit and I had to pretend I wasn't related to my father so my cousin Stanley Lesritz was the manager of the theater because, you know, it was kind of Uh family-oriented business a little bit Uh, so I had to call him Mr. Lesritz and he called me Mr. Robert. And so I guess people thought my name was mm, Robert something. And uh, and it wasn't a, it, we didn't really pull it off too well because I'm sure they all knew when my mother came to pick me up the next day.
0: Gil and I were talking about this and these are the days, these movie show places that your family built, these are the days when between the films, performers would take the stage.
1: Yes, you could see uh,
0: Bob Hope or Eddie Cantor or Jack Benny or the Marxes.
1: Yeah, the Marx brothers were a big deal there. Sophie Tucker was, I guess, a family wow. friend at the time. Vincent Minnelli directed was head of directing all the stage shows at the Balaban and Katz theaters. My dad's theater was an Art Deco theater because it was built after the movie Picture Palace idea, but it's a gorgeous theater and very very well designed. Um, and uh, and what was the question, Frank?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> We were just Gil, Gilbert and I just got a kick out of well those days. Of course, on this show we lament the loss of movie theater all the time. I mean, we've lost the Ziegfeld here in New York. We've lost so many great show places. Yeah. But we're nostalgic. I'm nostalgic. We didn't even live through it, Gilbert. But the yeah. but the days you could see the Marx Brothers coming up and on, on stage live and working out bits from their next movie.
1: Yes, and and, and I don't know. I guess people do sort of realize this. But the Marx Brothers did almost all of their movies as stage plays first to mm-hmm. work out the kinks and among other things to find out where the laughs were because in a movie obviously you can't stop for laughs, so it's not a bad idea to have in your head where the laugh is going to be, and then design so, you know you have to pick up a piece of paper at that moment or something happens and uh, I think and George Kaufman was you know hanging out with them because he wrote a lot of these things sure. and uh Maxine Marks, who is, I think, Harpo's daughter, I'm not uh, sure. Chico's.
0: Chico's. daughter.
1: Chico's daughter. She uh, she used to be a casting director and, at an ad agency that I did voiceovers for occasionally, and she said she was with, she was with the with the brothers. She was offstage. She was like 10 years old, and George S. Kaufman is watching, and he goes, all of a sudden, he whispers to her offstage, oh, my God, oh, my God. And she said, what happened? And he said, they said one of my lines. <laughs> wow!
0: Gilbert got to know Maxine a little bit.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. How do you know everything. You know everything about Gilbert? I do. I'm his keeper. Uh,
2: <laughs> and you know, Frank told me something that uh, a similarity we both had as kids, you and me. Uh, that when I was a kid, I used to make out of paper mache puppets
1: oh my goodness yeah i used
2: to make puppets and and i put on at least two productions from my parents (laughs) with like one of those fold-out dinner tables with a blanket over it yeah and i did one of dracula and one of jekyll and hyde
1: i did my fair lady Did you really? I really did. Learner and low. Yeah. My my parents I was I was a big New Yorker file, but I had never been there. And my parents came back and they were so excited about My My Fair Lady and I said I was probably nine. I said, Well tell me about it. And they, they told me about it and I created My Fair Lady the puppet show. But Julie Andrews refused to be in it though. <laughs>
2: So you were singing the whole thing.
1: I, 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 I kind of didn't care. I had, if if only I remained as as impervious to things and, as I was when I was that age. I just did whatever I could do, and I charged a nickel, and I made all my friends and all of my relatives had to come and see these things.
0: What's the story about how you 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 rigged a bunch of strings? You, you had seen the Invisible oh, Man and okay, been inspired yeah. by that.
1: Well. This, it, it, if we if we do this, this is great. I mean, it's like I'm reliving every minute of my life. But if we continue, this may be a 10-hour interview. So we move around. <laughs> I, I was infatuated with old horror movies. Oh, and, me too. Uh, again, You're in, in the right sort place, Bob. My 9 to 11-year-old period, I, I watched The Invisible Man and the, the Mummy, which was for me the most terrifying one. I could smell the tan leaves and I'd get terrified. And you can't really smell them on the television set. <laughs> but... I, I did this amazing thing which really didn't work at all but I thought it was fantastic. I would tie various things in my room that were movable to, to monofilament or you know white thread or whatever and I'd hide in my bathroom with the strings going under the door and I would ask a friend to come into the room and then I would start slowly pulling the strings and you know, like a pillow would move a little bit or maybe the lamp would shake. And I, I don't think I really terrified anybody but I, I spent a huge amount of time rigging my invisible band strings.
0: And, so you're a little bit of what they call a monster kid. you familiar with that term?
1: Um, I could imagine.
0: Yeah, kids who, well, like us, Gil, well, Gilbert and I are. Oh, I thought yeah. you
1: meant kids who behaved monstrously. No, no,
0: <laughs>
2: kids who, yeah. who grew up on that stuff. Yeah. I, I Loved would it. read, I would study famous monsters of film land. And...
1: I used to look up Lon Chaney in my Encyclopedia Britannica and it had a whole page of him showing him putting on his makeup. and how he put horrible things on his eyes to make him look blind, and all the stuff that he did. It was a great page, and I, I don't remember the page number now. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're talking to a man who sent a, a fan letter to Lon Chaney Jr. Okay. Mr. And, Gottfried.
2: And I have, like, a postcard back in a frame with a picture of the wolf man, okay. and it says uh, he signed the bottom, Lon Chaney.
1: Okay. I hope you kept it.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, my yep, grandfather produced a, was was head of production at at uh, MGM. He was the man who had originally been married to my father's sister, and then years passed, and he married my mother's mother and became my grandfather. But he was the Katz of Balabana Cats. Katz. His name was Sam Katz, and at Paramount he did a lot of things. He helped start the Arthur Freed musical unit and was very musical. He's supposedly, according to that wonderful woman Janine. Basinger. Oh, yes. Uh, he was responsible for Shirley Temple not getting the part and for Judy Garland getting the part in somewhere and sang, and sang Somewhere of the Rainbow because um, because of my uncle. But he also got an itch for a, a few movies that he was very personally involved with, and they were both terrible movies, but I loved them. One was called, it's sort of a cult thing, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. Terwilliger. Do you know that movie?
0: Hmm. Well, I didn't don't... they release it under the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T?
1: Yes. And I had an original... Hans five... Conried. Yes. Very good. Very, <laughs> very good. And I can't remember who else. And Hans Conrad was the evil piano teacher. Right. The whole movie is a dream about a little kid who hates playing the piano. And at one point, they converted two entire stages at MGM to a piano that sat 500 children who all played the piano at the same time. It's wow cool. it's a it's a Jeez. it's a triumph of shoddiness but it really is pretty <laughs> interesting I think
0: dr seuss wrote that screenplay really if i'm not mistaken god i yeah. could
1: have met dr seuss when i was little
0: yeah well do talk about how you went to uh you, you your first uh your first trip to a movie set, too, because to see Sid Charisse and Dan Daly.
1: Yes, it was very exciting. In in uh, Meet Me in Las Vegas, in which when Sid, when Dan Daly touches Sid Charisse's shoulder, or God, whatever else he's touching you, they don't mention that specifically, she becomes lucky and wins everything at the roulette table. It was a really not very good movie. I don't even think she sang and danced in the movie as I, far as I remember it. And it showed up on TV a couple of years ago. I think it shows every... 50 or 60 years, they show it once in a while. It's just a terrible movie. But at my... I was 10 years old, I broke my arm at camp, they didn't know what to do with me, so they packed me off to California to be with my grandparents who were in the movie business. Uh, And he took me to the movie studio and I had a little chair with my name on it. Oh, that's sweet. And I go there, sit in a chair, and I'm kind of a fanatic for movie sets. I'll, I'll like go anywhere and wait. even now if I if I can get near a movie set, all I want to do is sit and watch it and see how it works, and I love watching the people coming in and out and all that stuff. So I'm sitting there and it's a set of, an, of a casino in Las Vegas. It's gigantic, it's a whole soundstage of this one giant room. There are maybe 200 extras and they're all very quiet and everybody's standing around and I look out the glass windows to the fake outside and there are real cars coming in and moving and parking, it was just fantastic. And they screamed action. And all of a sudden two hundred extras start yelling, craps, craps, and yelling and screaming and saying they won. And and then they say cut and everything becomes quiet and nobody moves. And unfortunately, I was hooked. It was like after that. <laughs> that mm, was it. Yeah, I came home and made the puppet show of Meet Me in Las Vegas immediately. What, what's the, we'll, we'll move past the childhood
0: portion Thank of our God. program in a minute, <laughs> Bob. but this I do want to bring Barney back into the equation yep. because you told a fun story of when you made Midnight Cowboy. Okay. okay. Oh, these low, low these okay. fifty one years ago.
1: So I got a couple of jobs when I was in college in New York. I was uh, Linus in Your Good Man Charlie Brown, off Broadway, and so you know you get on casting directors' list, and I and I got into I had an audition for a movie for something called The Midnight Cowboy, which I didn't really know what it was. But I went for my audition at Marian Doherty, she's wonderful, there's a great documentary about her that I recommend everybody see. And I loved her, and I was kind of on her list of people that appeared to me maybe 16 or 17, even though they were maybe 20 or 21 or whatever. Um, And I had my audition with John Voight, which was great, because I had studied at Second City in Chicago, And the one thing that I could do fairly dependably, nothing else could I do dependably until I was at least 50. I mean, I really couldn't. (laughs) And even now, it's not all that dependable. But what I really could do was, don't give me a script, just tell me to do something. And I'm, I just, I'm very happy to do that. So for the audition for Midnight Cowboy, we, we did the scene where John Voight tries to steal my watch, and I've just gone down on him, and I'm throwing up in the Basin and and he's going to show the watch and my, maybe my mother will find out and then she'll figure out I was gay and all that stuff. And we did it for like 25 minutes. John was a really good improviser. I had a great time. And I walk out and then I got a call right away from the office and said, well, you got the part. So I called home and I said, I think I got a part in something, Mom. And she said, oh, you know, what is it? I said, I'm not really sure. I think it's, <laughs> a, I think it's a television series. <laughs> How in the world... Could there possibly be a television series where people <laughs> where people Sec- go down I- on people in 1976? I mean, <laughs> right. he, I he, when the movie came out, I was the x rating. Literally, there was That's a lot right. of stuff going on. But the, the, the implied bone job, uh, the only danger of which was my knees got horribly skinned from <laughs> kneeling <laughs> for such a long time. Um, and there it was. But,
2: but, but, I remember. I remember. I I snuck into the Cameo Theater on Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn, saw Midnight Cowboy, and for years after that whenever i see you in a movie or oh, tv great. show i go <laughs> that's the guy that who blew john boy
1: <laughs> well, everybody needs to be known for something but, but, but i was i was referring
0: uh, bob to when your 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 uncle said when you told your uncle you yes. were in a movie
1: so i told my uncle that uh, i'm in this movie and he happened that happened to be a paramount movie and I noticed that his the, the 10 film cans were sitting on his desk and then we went out for lunch and I thought, oh, I'm, I'll be curious as to what he thinks about me in the movie or the movie which I'm sure he had seen. And he never mentioned it. I mean, he lived for another 15 years after that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he could have said something. Interesting. Uh, but I, th- I think knowing my grandfather, he didn't have anything like great to say. I don't think it bothered anybody in my family sure. particularly. But I think he just didn't know what to say. So being from the Midwest as well, he just didn't say anything.
0: And since we're on the subject of Midnight Cowboy, Gilbert, mm-hmm. I promised Bob that, you would, that yes. you would favor him with a little bit of your John MacGyver.
2: You've got a strong back,
3: Joe Buck. You're going to need it. I'm going to work
2: you ragged. I'm going to use all the time. I Prayer doesn't have to be joyless. Get down on your knees. I pray everywhere. I pray in the saloon. I pray in a bar. I pray everywhere.
1: <laughs> well, that's, that's another career you have there.
3: <laughs>
0: Bob, you've been around the block, but have you ever heard a John MacGyver impression?
1: I don't think I ever knew anybody who even knew John MacGyver. <laughs>
2: A big John MacGyver this
1: show buddy yeah well somebody's got to (laughs) remember
0: the fact that you did Midnight Cowboy and Catch-22 while you were still in school and
1: and worked with John Voight in the first two things that I did
0: yeah twice
1: oddly enough yeah and um and it was interesting and in fact in Catch-22 originally Mike had suggested I be Milo Minderbinder or Minderbinder I never have figured out which one that was uh, and then it just worked out that I was Captain Orr and John Voight was Milo. But, um, but our, our paths cla- crossed very intensely, very briefly. And um, he's a wonderful actor, but I've never seen him since then.
0: You've never seen him again?
1: <laughs> I've never seen him again.
0: 50 years. What right. about Orson Welles on, on, on the set? Well, we didn't
1: become 22. good friends, but um, he was there. Uh, Catch-22, because yeah. Peter Bogdanovich was working with him uh, re- to using that footage from the movie called right. whatever it's called. You probably remember it. Do you remember it, Gilbert? Peter Bogdanovich made a movie out of shreds of things that uh, Orson Welles had done.
2: I, or, I remember oh hearing about it, but I forget well, so the Orson title.
1: Orson Welles came, terrorized everybody, uh, and Mike, obviously, Mike was in great, really respected him. He was also kind of terrified of him, I think. And he kind of ran ragged over the set, quietly. Um, and uh, and then, so from then on, I could actually say, I worked with Orson Welles, but th- then he died. Did you ever work with
0: him again? Did you ever no, run into him again? No.
1: Oh, he would not have had any idea that I was no, there. Huh? Oh, my God, no. We had
0: Austin on the show. We know your friends. Oh, so
1: there. you know the story about Austin and Orson? Oh, yeah. He told, okay. which well, which one specifically? He told well, the, the only thing I remember is... My character and a bunch of other people in Alan Arkin are sitting in this little mini auditorium in a tent, and Orson Welles is—is is he Dreedle? I can't. Oh no! Well, and and this very sexy, beautiful woman that had fake gigantic breasts, and Austin were were in a scene together, and Austin was very wonderful, and. And then they did our coverage first and then we went out and they did Austin and Orson and Suzanne Benton was her name, was playing Dreedle's nurse or something like that. And Austin would come out every 10 minutes practically crying. It's like, oh my God, I can't take it, I can't take it. Well, what had happened was Orson had gotten a sense that Austin might be stealing the scene. And there was a lot of focus pulling going on. It was very, very well photographed. It was very intricate and very complicated. And in the design of the shot, uh, Orson would go in and out of focus as Austin in the foreground would get into focus, and then Orson wouldn't. And Orson, without with his in, you know in knack of kind of knowing what was going on behind the camera, figured out every time that Austin was in focus, he wasn't in focus, and he blew the shot. It happened over and over and over again. It was one of those one shot that. wonder things. And he really, really did that. And Austin was weeping at the end of it, and yet Austin's still very good in the movie, and yes. Orson's fine. Yes. It's a good film. It's got some great stuff.
0: And We've had five people from that film here. Yeah,
1: and Buck. Did you ever have Buck? Or was we that... had Buck. Yeah, Buck, right.
0: Buck Austin, Peter Bonners, and mm-hmm. uh, who else? Who, who am I missing? Uh, I can't remember off the top. Except
1: of my head. for the fact that almost that whole group Richard is Benjamin. dead right now. Yeah, but we could Benjamin. come back and reproduce small sections of the movie on What's radio. It, is,
0: isn't uh, isn't George Clooney
2: supposed to be doing a, a catch? 22? He did it. Oh, he did it already.
1: Mm-hmm. He did it yeah. about two years ago. Oh, okay. I didn't see hey. it. I heard it was good
2: you directed an episode of amazing stories that i still remember
1: with milton burrell yes
2: yes Uh, (laughs) like these aliens come down and they're
1: aliens have fallen in love with american television they love i love lucy there's some sections of it where the aliens (laughs) act out scenes from i love lucy on whatever planet they were on they should we we showed those scenes and they came on came to earth and they had to fall in love with a very famous American television person. Only nobody was willing to do it except Milton Berle, um, <laughs> who happened to have played at my my relatives' theaters a lot. Oh, you know, there you in go. In Chicago, he did a lot of that. And there's a little story about that, which is not that. It's a little scatological. But anyway, so Milton's there. We have a little reunion. He obviously didn't remember me, but remembered my family. Someone. And he was—it was very interesting. First of all, it was amazing. You know, you you run into something like that. It's it's you you can't explain how that stays with you. You know, for your whole life. So he always asked two questions. Okay, Bob, is this scene supposed to be funny or is it a serious scene? Because I have to know whether I'm going to be Milton or Milty. Because if it's serious, I'm Milton, and if it's a funny scene, I'm Milty. I said, oh, my God, the man has two personalities. This is really scary. And also, I wouldn't say he couldn't remember his lines. He wasn't being paid enough to learn any lines or anything like that. So he had everybody write his lines on little pieces of paper, and the kids who were in the scenes with him would wear them. So one of the kids would have lines on his forehead so it could look like Milton was looking into his eyes. The other one would have, like, his lines on his chest. And that was my experience of that. But I, but I met some great people. And I had all, I, 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 was there, basically, because I knew Stephen from doing Close Encounters. And uh, he was kind enough to give me a shot at directing something. And it was probably the first thing I ever directed where you had to join a union.
0: That is, it's truly surreal to watch that episode because you've got what I assume are little people... Yes. In those in those alien costumes. And I had
1: alien masks made by some huge famous person who like did all the masks for Star Wars. And I kept them in my basement for years and years. <laughs> and I, I went one day I went, I could sell these things on eBay for millions of dollars. And I went and they all had melted into one goop of plastic.
3: Oh
0: <laughs> <laughs> But they're they're little people playing
2: extraterrestrials
1: dressed <laughs> as Fred Mertz and Gracie yes. Allen. Yeah, oh they were and they were they were great. and very good-natured. It's very hot inside those masks. Uh,
2: Now I have to ask you the obligatory Milton Burrell question. Yes,
1: here's the answer. So Milton is playing at my parents, my relatives, including my father's theater at the Chicago Theater. And he's with the guys and he always came to collect the box office receipts because in in those days, you know, he was always scared. He wanted to get his percentage because he had a, you know, he had a piece of the box office. And he came and they were all standing around the office counting the pennies and the nickels and everything. (laughs) And he said... Okay, I know what you're all thinking, so I'll show you. And he put it on the table, and he said, see? And then he put it back. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess he did everywhere he went. Uh, you must know Alan's white belt. <laughs> yes, I love it, Alan.
0: Yeah, okay. Alan's, did, I think, Alan, one... did
1: Alan have that story, too? Y- no, yeah. but
0: Alan, Alan saw it.
1: Oh, yeah. did he live?
2: Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, he, he was staring at it uh, eye to eye uh, he was sitting down, and Milton Berle was standing there. And Was he just uh, waving
1: it at him, or what were yeah, they doing he naked was, together?
2: Uh, he he said, do you want to see it? Oh, okay. And and uh, Alan Zweifel described it as an anaconda.
1: Well, it, it's and it's very scary to have something like that to be sitting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but we, we just have to say that in the days of Me Too where would this have fit in <laughs> it's like he's in the days of show me he didn't do anything with it but he showed a lot of people
0: i think it was when he hosted snl wasn't it gill in the dressing room? Yeah, yeah 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 yeah
1: well i guess you get to a certain point in your career and there are just a few things that still remain
0: yeah, <laughs> we, we, Gilbert and I also watched Bob. We watched your uh, one of your Twilight Zone episodes. Oh,
1: yeah, okay,
0: the Pharaohs Curse, which was a lot of fun, and the Tales from the Dark Side episode, the pilot that you did with the great Barnard Hughes.
1: Oh wow, yes, actually, yeah. part of that was probably how I got to do my Amazing Stories episode because a producer named David Vogel had produced Tales from the Dark Side, and when he when Stephen needed a line producer for Amazing Stories. I recommended David, who was a wonderful producer and a very good line producer. But I guess he was also my champion saying, cat Bob an episode. And then I felt terrible about my episode because it wasn't, it was kind of dumb, but I did my best.
0: What about that? Uh, we, what about the Twilight Zone episode?
1: There were two the, the of them. The Pharaoh's Curse them in Canada, was sort they, of a Harry
0: Blackstone story.
1: I kind of vaguely remember it. They, they were kind of fun to do, yeah. But of course, these were not original Twilight Zones. I, right, I, right. This I, was the I, Forrest
0: Whitaker edition. Because
1: I would have, I could have done the Twilight Zone puppet show, but I wasn't old enough to actually do the episode.
0: <laughs> we assume you're a fan of the original series.
1: Then. Of course, I am. Yeah, They're yeah. great, and this one was kind of slapdash. But I like doing things that are quick, that nobody notices, and you just get in and you just do your best and you can't worry about anything. And sometimes you're freer and looser. And I enjoyed those two episodes, not that I remember them particularly, but the food was very good. We were in Vancouver. um, And it was really fun doing the show. And the scripts were pretty interesting. It was very uneven, but, you know, that's okay.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. You know, you, ha- you do have a taste
0: for horror, and I find it very interesting. That- yes, I do, and,
1: and the first movie I got to make on my own was a horror, sort of a horror yeah, film called we'll Parents. talk about Parents. Yeah. Um, I had been directing Penn & Teller in a Showtime, in the very early days of Showtime, we did like a, a hybrid little movie, actually, about an alien that comes from outer space. He's gonna destroy the Earth unless he can find four reasons not to destroy the Earth. And nobody ever saw this. It was called The Invisible Thread. And it was kind of good, actually. And you know, I love Penn and & Teller and I've been friends with them ever since. But somebody in an office, maybe accounting, had written a script called Parents and he called me and said, "Do you, you don't know me, I'm in the accounting office, I see you here every day, you're coming and directing this thing. Uh, would you read it? And I'm like, well, oh, first of all, I always say yes to anybody because you never know where the next good thing is going to come from. So I'm, I'm very superstitious. And I read it, and I thought it was interesting. And the one thing I mostly did for the movie was it was set gothically in scary old castle, and this was happening. It was all very morose. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, I, I like this thing, and I don't. And you don't have to change it all that much." And it, and. I said, but the one thing is I'd love to set it in 1955. It should be cheerful and happy and with bright colors and it would be much more wonderful if the parents were cannibals in that situation. And there's there are metaphors. It turned out I really basically, the movie was autobiographical for me because I grew up in the cheeriest, happiest house and I, it, and in spite of all of its scary undercurrents, nothing bad really happened. I had lovely parents and lovely sisters, but for me... I knew there was a dark cloud hanging around somewhere. And it reminded me of the little boy in parents who happens to look a lot like I looked at the time. You know, when, when, when I was 10, he was nine. And when I was nine, that was, that was kind of me then. This, uh, this, this kid who knew that something bad was happening, but couldn't put his finger on it. And that was why I made the movie. And, and that's why I'm crazy. <laughs> it's a good black comedy.
2: One horror film we talked about a lot on this show, and I want to know your opinion, of The Black Cat. You know this picture with Karloff and Lugosi?
1: I've only heard about it and read Uh, about it. I didn't see it.
0: You you must watch it. Okay. You must watch it. I
1: remember seeing some, some of the horror movies where they did all the characters together like there was one with Wolfman and... Oh, and, House, and of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. House of Frankenstein. House of Dracula yeah. and, and
2: Abbott and, and Costello.
1: Yeah, and I love that. And I love the Abbott and Costello one where they keep pushing the revolving door and when they push it one way, the monster comes out. When they push it one way, like Bud Abbott comes out. Or <laughs> That's one of my favorite uh, things that you I... Know, interesting I, I can remember about, any more than that.
0: The, watching Parents again, and I remembered liking it when I first saw it in the, in the, in the 80s... Uh, You know, we've talked about, on this show, Gil, we talk about how nobody really does black comedy, black, really dark black comedy.
1: Well, there's a reason. And why is that? It's very hard to know that it's a comedy. If you're in the if you have the wrong expectation and you've been, and it's been advertised that it's scary, you have no, no, there's no hope. And there's a very small window of people who like, as who, and what is it, George, what they said, you know, don't do satire, it closes on Thursday. That's the definition of satire. Um, it's tricky because I know when we made Parents, the, the studio loved it. It was for Vestron and they thought it was scary and wonderful. I never thought it was particularly scary, I just thought it was ominous, you know. Well basically. acted, certainly. I thought the actors were great yeah. Sandy and then Dennis. I went on to become really good friends with Mary Beth Hurt and yeah. other people from the She's movie great. and Sandy Dennis was fantastic. Wonderful. Um, yeah, but when when they when they started getting ready for the movie, they put on a screening in Paramus, New Jersey, and they showed me the, the 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 one sheet for it, and it said, and it was aimed at boys between twelve and sixteen. This is not who that movie was. Not at all. For. And it said, beware! This is the scariest movie you will ever see. And I had to go to the screening with a whole bunch of the studio and the staff and the producer and some friends of mine. And it starts going ten minutes into it. The children in the movie start screaming, "Where's the beef? Where's the beef?" And then they literally started throwing things at the screen. Like you know, I don't know if it was tomatoes, but at least it was a lot of popcorn. And I think by the by the by the twentieth minute of the movie, they had all left. We didn't even have to stay for the rest of the movie. <laughs> oh, good lord! <laughs> and then when it opened, it got some really good reviews. You know about all yeah, but- and kale. Yes, Pauline, thank you for knowing that. Yeah, yeah, Pauline kale was was great about it. She mostly talked about the acting, which is funny in a movie like that. But she figured, you know, she figured out that somebody, the only thing I can claim to have been somewhat savvy about in that movie, other than the wonderful shot where, she, where Sandy did screams and the camera pulls oh, back in the, the, of the house, which of course, obviously no CGI. If they had it, we couldn't have afforded it. So that was all constructed with with little pieces of the set that moved on wheels so the camera could be hidden and then you could see the camera and you know, all this kind of stuff. But um, but it, it was it was hated by uh, by most people.
0: I think oh. it, it's a film that has a cult following now.
1: I think it might, you know, but, but part of things that have cult followings by nature were huge failures when they came out.
0: I read the John Waters movie, Serial Mom borrows thematically from parents. Have you heard this before? No,
1: but I think that's great. My roommate in college, was, had been John Waters' roommate, and he was so scared of John Waters that he had to leave. And it was like, John Waters (laughs) is the sweetest man. But John Waters just scared him for some reason, I don't know why.
2: Now, your family made these theaters, Yeah, and it's like years ago, I mean, even as much as seeing the movie was seeing the theaters when you go.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well... We have to remember there was nothing else. You know, Radio, there was radio, you know, but this is where you could see things and it could be, and there was no competition, so they could really spend the kind of money. You can only imagine these things were handmade. The architects for the Balaban and Katz Theater were called Rap and Rap. They they specialized in Egyptian and archaeological kind of figures, so there were gargoyles and, oh, and wow. mummies. and you know, the, It was just fantastic and really very, very beautiful. The family mausoleum into which my mother said when I die, if you ever put me there, I'll kill you, yeah. <laughs> uh, was made by Rap and Rap. And when I was a kid, I, as my, grand, as my uncles, one by one would die because they were all, Barney was 24 years older than my dad, so the ones who lived only to be 60 were dying when my dad was like 28 or 38 years old. So I used to see the mausoleum a lot, and one day he went with me because he wanted to put flowers on somebody's, whatever you call people in a mausoleum it's not a grave it's whatever it is and they had an eternal flame in there which was like it was like a dracula movie in there and i bumped into the eternal flame and it fell over and went out which i've never forgot that for many many years wow but of course they just put it up again and lit it and added some oil and it was fine
0: And the, the ah, family and parents, by the way, is named Lemley. Is that a, is that an in joke?
1: No, it was in the script. I don't know oh. how that happened. Oh, okay. I, In fact, I forgot it until this moment. Yeah. Okay,
0: Gil, yeah. I know I wouldn't. I'm not really old enough to, to have remembered some of those show places. Did, 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 I mean, obviously, Radio City showed movies, and
1: but Radio there, there remember no, but Radio some... City was deco. The, yeah. the, this yeah. that was later. I right. mean, Georgia O'Keeffe was around in the twenties, and she's the sure. one who originally painted the mural in the bathroom, and then had a a breakdown and couldn't finish painting her mural that she was supposed to paint in a bathroom of a movie theater. Uh, but that was later the height of these things. They they really started getting crazy in about 1915 or 16.
0: I would have you given know. anything to see them.
2: Yeah. The, I, I remember a lot of these incredible theaters, when Times Square truly was Times Square, Yes, uh, were like showing porn and... Uh and really low-budget horror films and
1: stuff well when we did the midnight cowboy which was filmed in three different locations i had three little baby scenes over spread over, over three and a half or four months it began with the end of the movie with me throwing up in the movie theater which was done somewhere in a movie theater throwing up i don't remember where then it had me going down on john voigt in the village in the In this, in this, I forget the name of the theater, but it's a famous San Francisco theater that they also had in the East Village, and that was there. And then in September, we did in front of the movie theater where John, where I see John Voight and pick him up in front of the movie theater, and that really was on Times Square. So, I think it was a night scene. I can't quite remember, but I know I had to walk to one of those horrible hotels that used to exist right on Forty Second Street. Yeah, you had to hold your hands. To your pocket, so that nobody would reach in and grab your wallet or your your watch or anything. It was absolutely terrifying. And then they put us in one of the hotels. You know, the, the cast. It was you know there were only like three cast members in the thing and a bunch of extras. And we all had to go in one of those hotels up there, in the room. And I was scared to sit on the on the couch. I thought I'd get bugs or something. And it wasn't such a such a a, a far away thought that that would happen. But and it really. It really has changed since then, but it still is cheap and tawdry. but at least it's not dangerous, but it was really, really dangerous. And the reason that they played horrible movies is only horrible people went to see movies in that horrible location.
2: <laughs> right. I, I remember I used to go to the improv every night and
1: uh-huh.
2: how I didn't get killed. Yeah. It was a scary. Yeah. Place. Culture
0: shock for a kid from Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Sidney Lumet, one of Gilbert's favorite topics. <laughs> oh,
1: okay, yes. Well. We Why had to. What is he three, your favorite? Why do you? Well, aside from the fact that he's brilliant, did you know him, Gilbert?
2: No, never met him. I just know I loved all of his films. Well, I used to say the star of a Sidney Lumet film was New York. Yes. And I, I remember I liked The Pawnbroker and Dog Day Afternoon, and, and Prince of the City, I'm a big fan of, Yeah. and also a lesser picture, by by Braverman.
1: Yeah, well, I met Sydney at an audition for Prince of the City, and it's interesting because I never thought I was right for the part, and I never thought I was very good in the movie, which is fine, you know, doesn't matter what actors think, you just have to do what you do, and whatever happens, happens. But I remember it at the audition, He's a lovely man and he takes a lot of time with actors. And I probably was late for something and I had to wait for about an hour and a half <laughs> to have my little audition. And I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm rather easygoing. I mean, I'm probably not really, but I act like I'm easygoing and I, you know, and it takes an awful lot for me to register annoyance, even forget anger, you know, that kind of thing.
0: You're one of the happiest men in show business. Bob. Uh, it, was right in the, it was right in the intro.
1: I, I would say quietest <laughs> might, might be the adjective. I wouldn't necessarily say happiest, but so I'm boiling mad and I'm, and I, I barely looked at the script before. So I said, this character is another asshole, do I have to play another asshole, you know? So I got in there and we didn't talk much and we just did the scene. And I was ragingly, I was quiet, but oh my God, was I mad. And then I left and I got a call, oh, you got the part, you were great, what'd you do? It's like, I'll never be this mad again. I don't know how I'll be able to do this thing. <laughs> but everybody thought I was perfectly fine. Um, and I didn't, and it doesn't matter. And for my birthday one year, my wife made me a short, made, wrote, she's a wonderful writer, Lynn Grossman is her name, and she wrote a short film that's yes. wonderful. Yes. And she said, You have to you can't just keep being doctors and psychiatrists and lawyers all the time. You have to be <laughs> in control of your life a little bit more. So here's my present to you. I'm writing you a short film. And it was wonderful. She's a wonderful writer and she continues to be and she does all sorts of great things. So
0: we want I, to see that film, by the way.
1: Well, it's really very good. Actually, yeah. and, and- it was,
0: R- Richard Dreyfus is in it.
1: Richard Driver's is in it, yeah. Wally Shawn, yeah, we'd and, like to see it. and a bunch of other people. You... It's, you know it's a very simple movie, but but it got me started, basically. but it, so I so I I'd, I'd make this short film. It was devastatingly difficult. And in order to do the movie, to to do the short film, I had to turn down a lead in a Broadway play that Jules Pfeiffer had written, which is a very good play. And he wrote the part for me based on something he saw me in at one point. And he called and he said, Bob, I've thought about you the whole time I was writing the play. So I've written you a play. It's the starring role. It starts, you know, in in a month. And I said, I can't do it. He said, what do you mean you can't do it? I wrote the play for you. And I said, well, I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to become a director. So... I I, I really can't throw this aside and I have actually asked Sidney Lumet if I could apprentice myself to him and because I had just done a movie with him, he was willing to let me, when I say apprentice, it it implies that I might have helped him or carried some books or pencils around. Literally, it simply meant I was allowed all the time to watch what was happening from early pre-production until editing. I got to watch the whole process. And Sidney, because He's such a wonderful, generous man and loves teaching people. You know, it's a very Talmudic sort of thing, I think. And he was raised very religiously. Told me about everything that was happening in the movie. It was the movie of Death Trap, which wasn't his most successful movie, but it's a fun movie. Yeah, it's fun. And for me to be watching was a brilliant movie to be observing because... It wasn't like *Prince of the City*, where the, it was 185 pages shot in like seven weeks, where every day they had three moves and they had to pack everything up. There would be no time for me to do what I did, which is I slavishly wrote down in uh, in the script on the on the on the empty side of the page. I wrote down all the camera moves, the lenses that were being used. You know how what the shot looked like. Did it have a zoom? Well, he didn't zoom, but you know, did it have a dolly or whatever? And it was a tremendous experience. So I, I, I said to Jules, who I think stopped talking to me for about 42 years after that, that I had to do this non-existent thing of working with Sidney Lumet where I wasn't getting paid or wasn't doing anything. But it was a highlight of my life, both because I learned so much, but because I got to see a great man working from all angles and all sides. And the simplest thing I took away from it, and there were many, many other things I took, but the simplest thing I took was, Sidney had the concentration, the skill and the greatness with being with people so that every single person on the set thought he was only doing the movie for, their, for them. The oh. actors thought he, he, that was it. it was, he, he lived and breathed acting and we had a four-week rehearsal period and all sorts of stuff. And the, as, when I was acting in the movie, even though I was unhappy with myself, I was aware of the care and the meticulousness with, with which he dealt with actors. The furthest guy in the, on, you know, on a lighting rig, twenty-eight feet up in the air, that Sidney would come in every day and say hello to him and talk to him about a new invention he made for how to, how to drop a, a, a little gobo over something without getting hurt by using an instrument with a pincer attached to it. Everybody in the movie thought that that Sidney loved them and was making the movie for them, and in a way, he was. He was the happiest person I ever speaking of happy I ever saw on <laughs> a set. That. I mean, in his real life, he had many ups and downs and whatever it was. He was always a wonderful person, but he was in heaven the way Robert Altman was in heaven when he was on a set. But leading up to the making of the movie and the, after the movie was over, Sidney was just blissful as long as he could just be near film. It was he was just it was just amazing to watch. That's great that. to hear. What a yeah. body and, of work. And yeah.
2: you were on you've been on both sides of the camera, of
1: course. Yeah yeah
2: how what's the first sign that you're working with a bad director
1: i, I probably wouldn't have recognized it <laughs> you know right. what i mean oh i remember but i can't tell you who wow. it was but you
2: don't have to say the name i was
1: but... working with a director um it was probably i'd been in a bunch of movies so i kind of knew when i easier than that i knew when somebody was great and it didn't mean the movie was going to be great but you know I i i could get a sense when somebody knew what was happening and was putting it together well. But for a lot of years, before I started directing myself, I didn't pay that much attention to the making of the movie part. When I was in a movie, I was so fixated on myself. I didn't really pay attention until I started directing. And then I and then I watched and paid attention. And when I did Close Encounters, um, I, I didn't bother Steven Spielberg, but I tried to figure out every single thing he did and how he did it and why he did it. And Stephen is the kind of director, like Sidney Lumet in a way, and like Robert Altman in a way, who wants to share. I, you know, you can be a great director and, and, be, and hate people, I guess, but some of these great directors that I work with absolutely love the actors. They love the people part. They don't necessarily, in fact, they usually hate the executives. You know, that's, that's that stuff they don't like. But these are people who want you to see their dailies. Altman, the thing was, it's lunch. Why didn't you go to see the dailies today? And this was, you know, before I was even producing a movie with him. I just used to know him and he'd invite me to every screening and seeing all the dailies and all that stuff. Stephen would take the actors that paid attention, that, you know, would, would be hanging around, he would take us to his house for dinner and show us old great movies that he wanted to point out. There's some brilliant movie that's entirely made in a studio that the entire movie takes place with like eight feet of snow on the ground and you're, you're fooled into thinking it was really snowing outside. It's a very famous movie, I can't remember the name. But he loved showing us this the way Marty Scorsese's dream is to make a movie where he shows you all his favorite movies and explains why this one is so good or why mm-hmm. this one isn't so good. This is a, a quality that a lot of great directors have That's that's I've been lucky enough to be around a number of people who wanted to share this.
0: They're inclusive. It doesn't and mean I share.
1: can do it, they but it means that at least I have an idea of what good is. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's interesting with Altman too, and I, I heard you say that. I saw an interview with you, and you were talking about how he would invite, you know, the 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 smallest person with the smallest role in the production. Uh-huh. You mm-hmm. you have to go, you have to go to dailies. I mean, he yeah. really he really viewed it as a as a, a group experience, a group. Well, thing. in his
1: case. His anxiety level, his perfectionism, his his everything, was so keyed up until the day that the cameras rolled, because Robert was a very complicated person, and a fair amount of his movies would fall apart or the financing didn't happen. And he, you know, there were he didn't get along with bosses. You know, he had to be a boss, which is kind of a sign of a great director, you could say. But the anxiety with Gosford Park, I I eventually found the financing by mistake. Uh, it wouldn't have happened. I was able to, and, and a bunch of things. It was always very rocky. So he was really on edge. Literally the first day that they the camera started turning, and I was probably there after the second or third day started, I wasn't going to be on the movie at all because... I was only producing it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was too expensive to have me stay there. But then nobody else was willing to play the part of the American producer. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You're for sort of the ugly American in that. Yes, yeah, for, for, yeah. for many reasons, including you had to stay there for a good long time because Robert filmed those scenes in sequence and, you, and he wanted you there. He didn't want to just do half the room and then shoot you out so you could go home because you were Paul Newman. It was, we need Bob Balaban because he'll stay. He has nothing else to do and so he'll he'll have to be there all the time (laughs) but um
0: you met him you met him years and years ago you had i met him years and years ago for brewster mcleod
1: oh how how did you do it i must have said that i guess somewhere you said i had an audition for brewster mcleod and bun court was a friend of mine we had actually done a movie together that was the example of the movie that i didn't give you uh, where I knew the director was a lovely man and made great commercials, but just wasn't made out for making well, movies. Well, we're going to
0: look it up after we hang up with you,
1: you can do that. <laughs> I've only been in one, one movie with Bud.
0: You stayed t- in touch with Altman over the years, and then you, you mm-hmm. said, what 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 haven't you done? And he had never done a, a whodunit a mystery. Well, I was sitting around mystery.
1: thinking of how can I get off my ass mm-hmm. and stop waiting for the phone to ring all the time. And I thought this would be a good idea. I was reading it. I got the Christie piece, and I thought, I don't remember Robert ever doing much in London, and he certainly never did a murder mystery exactly. I mean, he did a little bit of everything, but this sure. hadn't happened. So when I told him my little three-page synopsis of what this could be, he immediately responded to it, and uh, and then I found Julian Fellows. It was a miracle. Um, I had been given a script by another friend who's a producer who said, I know this writer, he's been around, he's he's old, <laughs> he, he's never gotten anything made, and he's never, I don't think, sold a screenplay, but he's talented. So I had him write a, a, something called The Eustace Diamonds, which is an Anthony Trollope novel, and he did a magnificent job. This person out of nowhere who who was who an actor who used to do small parts in commercials and got on TV once in a while. And so I, I dragged him in and... and uh, and now and he's an in industry. all of our surprise, he got to he got to be the writer, and he understood from the beginning how to write this movie. And Robert, you could tell; I mean, it was magical. Yeah.
0: You you are you are uh, you are partially responsible for the for Downton Abbey.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, sure, Indir- indirectly. Well, and yeah. Maggie Smith. You know, yes, that's right. That's it's it's right. kind of It's it's kind of it's kind of Gosford Park fancier.
0: Yeah, because Gosford Park out. was
1: actually the, the mansion was which we all wanted this to be. It was kind of falling apart, but please don't tell the owner of the mansion this. But, uh, but Downton Abbey had the best of the latest, newest scenery, curtains, good couches. We, we, this thing was filled with decrepitude as the really fa- fabulous rich people from, f- with houses that were built in you at know, that time.
0: It's a wonderful movie with a lot of old Hollywood references in it. If you want yep. to hear Ray Milland and Claudette yeah. Colbert and Alan Mowbray mention
1: Well, you know, those, that was all improvised. Oh really? Yeah, I mean, when I say that was all the parts when I was on the telephone, they didn't work exactly. Everything else in the movie was beautiful, but uh, but frankly, Julian in that movie, it was hard for him to capture what would uh, American voices. He he can do anything in the world now, but I think at that point he really was more comfortable doing things with British people. So Robert said, "Well, just don't say any of that." I said, "Can I do that?" I mean, that's kind of rude to you know, but nobody minded, and they were only phone calls. It didn't right, really matter. Right, right. And so I he just said, just talk, pretend you're making this movie, and what are you saying? And now be casting the movie. And I I I, I forever want to shoot wanna shoot myself, but nobody seems to notice this. I was thinking, you know, when you're improvising, you just think about what say what you know. You you know, you can't improvise something you don't know about. And I, I remember that I from the minute I saw Claudette Colbert, I knew two things about her. I knew one was that you could only photograph her from the left, she would not be photographed from the right. I remembered that. And I also remembered I didn't know if she was British or if, if she was like phony. I, I couldn't. Yeah. So that's how come my little rant about Claudette Colbert is she British or just it's affected? Great. You it's know, great. Whatever. But it was fun. And that's, that's and that's a fun movie. And the thing about great directors, they all are great for different reasons. And Robert's greatness was literally his, his, his very being on a set that you were on, was a, it provided electricity for the whole day. And not because he kept you on edge, but the opposite. Because he so reveled in everything you were doing, and he paid so attention to it, and he was so careful, and yet would let you do anything you wanted. And if he didn't like it, he would tell you. So, but you felt ultra, ultra, totally freed, because he was not. He was somebody who directly grew up on television. That was his job, and grew to hate it. So he didn't necessarily like it that you should say your lines the way they're written. Mm -hmm. The fact. I mean, you probably have noticed this, but Robert Altman, when he shoots, developed a shooting style strictly because he hated what he had to do on television, which is a master of three close-ups and two overs, and that's what you, and then you had the scene. So Robert loved, as you know, he always sure. had two cameras oh, moving Overlapping. In. Now, and now I'm, I'm acting this out with my hands, which is like really silly. Because you know, I don't think anybody, nobody's watching this on TV, are they? By no, no, chance? it's only audio. Okay, well, that's good because I, 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 I didn't wash my hair today, um, my one hair. Um, he had one camera slightly behind the other camera and giant pieces of gently circling tracks. One would begin moving from left to right and the other one would be above it and moving from right to left. There was always a point when one of the cameras blocked the other camera where you didn't have a shot and then for the rest of it, you had this gently moving eye watching the scene and gently panning and and he did it for almost every movie unless it was a big wide shot or Mm -hmm. an establishing shot or something like that. He He didn't do what a lot of bad directors do which have these little wandering camera moves on long shots and then they never move anything after that. But this was very, it's the thing that when people saw the movie that they most responded to and they didn't know it was was the way it was shot. They said, we feel like we're in these scenes with the characters. Why do we feel that way? And it's because of the way he shot the movie. And he did it because when he shot on television, he always felt that if there was a long shot, a close-up and a medium shot, that they were all useful for some pieces of the scene but he always found places where he wished he'd been on the side of somebody. And he said some of the best moments happen in movies with people leaving and then talking over their shoulder. Well, when you do this wandering style in pan with people, you pick up, it's like having 3,000 shots of people in one scene in a movie without looking busy. It looks organic. So it's a great thing. That, that's one of the things I, I picked up that I loved. And when I did an HBO movie that was just a little independent movie with Ray Fiennes and Susan Sarandon called Bernard and Doris. Uh, it was literally made for $500,000, and she's the richest woman in the world. We... Bulgari said, "We'd like to donate, you know, to let Susan wear the Bulgari or Bulgari or whatever it is, the jewelry." And I said, "Well, you're very generous, but we can't afford the guard to watch the jewelry, even though you're giving it to us wow. for free." We, <laughs> we can't <really> do it. <laughs> so they 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 really were great because also they loved Susan and they wanted to keep supplying her with jewels every time she won an Academy Award. But um, but anyway, let, what else should we talk about?
0: i just say like lumet when you look at those when you look at altman's body of work i mean i could watch mccabe and mrs miller yeah i, I absolutely love it but nashville's incredible for so many reasons and he and he worked in different genres Yep,
1: yeah.
0: and the long goodbye
1: yeah yeah I it's just, amazing and then in between he would wander around doing whatever he felt like making enemies of all the studios it was very hard for him because when we did gosford park there was literally, he had made a movie called Dr. T and the Women right before he made, we made Gosford Park and uh, the movie didn't do very well. I liked it actually but oh, Richard, it offended Richard. people because yeah. the guy was an amorous obstetrician, which right. is really not a gynecologist, <laughs> I mean even worse. There was no baby coming out, it was just him and the women. Um, but, and, and so he was really persona non grata, it was very hard to get financing. And you could say how the tragedy... Well, it's kind of like Orson Welles, except Robert Altman made 3,000 movies, and Orson Welles made three and a half movies. That's
0: a good analogy.
1: But, um, but, you know, there, there, but, but in exchange for, for that, Robert always had complete authority. When we sat down in the beginning to try to raise the money, and I went to a bunch of the meetings with Robert, uh, the guy who financed Dr. T and the women wanted to give us $16 million for Gosford Park. And we thought we could do it for 9 or $10 million, but we didn't tell him that, you know. And then we had lunch, and it was like, okay, let's sign a napkin now or whatever we have to sign. And and this nice man said, oh, by the way, I find it, if you don't mind my saying so, I adore the movie, it's brilliant and it's wonderful, but, but the fact is, you don't really solve the murder, particularly in that version of the script at that point. And you should make whatever movie you make, because he knew Robert, you know, you don't tell him what to do. But would you even consider having an ending? <laughs> Robert, Robert said, no, and I'm not going to let you give me the money. So we made the movie for $9 million wow. instead of $16 million. Wow. So, you, you know, if you want real, you know, do whatever you want, you, you, you pay a price, but then you also gain a lot.
0: I find it interesting, Gilbert likes... Gilbert's still out there acting. And Gilbert likes, uh, he doesn't like, actually, the process of auditioning. But you like mm-hmm. it.
1: I don't audition enough anymore because yeah. I, People you know, are writing they kind of know he does this, he does that. You know, you don't have to do that. Um, but I do like it. I always liked auditioning for many different reasons, including I love not knowing what's happening. I'm, I'm a kind of, I've... I've and I'm kind of getting over this not wanting to know what's happening business because, you know, like it can be really tiring. But I want just to be me and what's, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the piece. I don't want to have to have things like now I have to know lines, now I have to walk to a certain place, let me just be there, which is, you know, like the dream we all have, but you have to be realistic about it. But in auditioning, you get to hold on to your script, at least you do now, You you, you do then, you didn't used to be able to do it. So... I would glance at the script just enough to know did I have to really be emotional, in which case maybe I'd prepare. But I would never, st- I didn't want to know what it was. So I would be in these auditions and I'd go, this is happening? Oh my God. I would get so excited because the first time you read something, you can't get that again until you rehearse and you rehearse and you work and you sure. work and you work. And if you're lucky, my character in Waiting for Guffman says this at one point with Christopher Guest playing Corky because Corky never prepares for anything, he just like goofs off all the time. And 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 he says to me, "Well, what's your opinion?" I said, "Well, I think you have to work very very hard, and you have to learn everything and practice everything, and then pretend you don't, and then pretend you don't know what's happening." And Chris said, "Well, it's easier my way. I really don't know what's happening." <laughs> and, and I was just saying that was my goal, even as an actor. But, discovery, but the height of that discovery was yeah. simply to be auditioning all the time. I auditioned for. I auditioned for starting over for Alan Pakula, one of my oh, most sure. favorite directors. And I don't know what was going on in my personal life, but you know, I was uh, under some anxiety cloud or whatever. And I went in, and it's a silly, wonderful movie. And Austin Pendleton ended up doing my part okay. in the movie. I mean, the part, and if Austin sees this, forgive me, Austin. I mean, but all actors all got a part because somebody else <laughs> didn't do it, you know, for the most part. And at my audition with, with, with um, Pakula... There's a scene where we're all in group therapy. You remember the movie with Candy Yeah, Burnham Burt, Burt and Reynolds. It's, it's great, and Burt and Reynolds is and fabulous. Hilt-Labor. And we're, I'm in the men's group and I have to tell a tragic story and we literally weep, it says. Now, it's a comedy, so you didn't really have to weep. But I was I so didn't understand the script that when I got to the partner and it says he weeps, I just started to bawl, you know, basically. <laughs> and directors like when people can have emotions you know it's 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 i didn't think twice about it but the one thing i knew was i probably could never do it again because it was a comedy and it had nothing to do with my part i was just really in a bad mood that day so it was very easy to do because i didn't have to work on it i literally could just read it so Uh, that's way too much on that i hope you cut a lot of this out please yeah
0: gilbert well why do you hate
1: the process of auditioning does, does
0: anything bob
2: say can you relate to any of that Oh no. See, I hated it in the beginning part of my career and then I became good at it.
1: But uh Well as soon as you're good at something, it does become more more friendly.
2: Yeah. I, I found myself more ready to play with stuff. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's that those auditions I enjoyed. Like uh well like Aladdin and Beverly Hills Cop too. I went in and just played and enjoyed it, rather than trying to be good, you
1: know. Yeah, somebody that I worked with recently um, said something I thought was really smart. He said he had been auditioning and auditioning and he had studied well and he had great teachers and he went to RADA and all sorts of things. We were doing a series together called Condor, which was only on for a year and the second year may return at some point. And he said, but he wasn't getting jobs. And, a, and a, some teacher that he wasn't even working with said, well, let's talk about this a little. And then he, he said, let's work for a minute. And he said, I know what's wrong. You're fulfilling the part beautifully, but how do you feel about this thing? Are you having fun? And he said, no, I'm just working really hard. And he said, until you're entertaining yourself, no, other people aren't going to be entertained enough to want to hire you. You have to be doing something that excites you, that you enjoy, that's fun, even if it's a tragedy. And a lot of people make them, I for me the mistake is if you're playing in a tragic part, it's much easier to do that if you aren't feeling tragic. Um, it, it, I can't explain this very well as you can see. So let's 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 hop away from that <laughs> stupid topic. I, I shouldn't, uh, well, I shouldn't me, be talking too much. Let me ask you
0: a couple of quick questions from okay. listeners, if I can. Okay. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, people Marty are listening Wein- to this now? No, no, no. <laughs> these are pre- these are pe- questions people sent in. Oh,
1: my God.
0: They sent them in on, a, on Patreon. We do a thing called Grill the
1: Guest. Okay, I hope and they know are, I lie.
0: Marty Weinberg wants to know, can Mr. M- uh, Balaban talk about acting with the late, great Fred Willard, who we just... Yes. Sadly.
1: Well, acting with Fred... Was unlike anything I've ever done. Um, even if I didn't interact with him, in waiting for government, all I did was sit with Christopher Guest and watch <laughs> him audition. With Midnight at the Oasis. Midnight at the Oasis. <laughs> it's great. Well, as you know, these movies were unscripted. They they would say Ben, Fred, and Catherine come in, <laughs> right. and they and they do something. It's Nobody wonderful. knew. Even Christopher didn't know what song they were going to do or that they were going to have music. I mean, who knew? You didn't know that, and so it was. It was. It was. Everything Fred did was so intelligent and so when he needed to plan, he planned and if he didn't have to plan, he would only plan as much as he needed to. He was the most present person I've almost ever worked with, which is why I loved him in scripted movies, but in non-scripted movies, when you'd be three inches away from him and you could literally almost look into his eyes and see what his brain was doing. it was leaping around, these are the givens, this is the circumstance, I could go here, I could go there and... He did the best desperation that I've ever seen in anybody. It was, <laughs> it was, it was the real thing, and he could control it. It wasn't like, and he was the happiest man in the world, as you know, as everybody says. So it's there's no big news because he's so he's really the happy person. He had a great relationship. He had, yes. was great with his kids. I think he loved his life. He seemed to be because I worked with him a million times, and he always was having a good time. But being with him. Felt a little bit like being—I I said this already—but being run over by a truck, but a very friendly truck. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: but he had he, every trick there was that you could do. He could do, and and things would pop into his. When you're working with Eugene Levy, it's you know it's different because everybody's motors are different, their speeds mm-hmm. are different, sure. and everything. But this is a Eugene story. And you didn't ask me about that, but That's it's okay. kind of like Fred. I love him too. So in these movies, in these Christopher Guest movies you have multiple takes. Yes, you're inventing it and yes, there's no rehearsal and you don't tell Chris what you're doing, you just know you can't go too far left or the camera ends over here 20 feet to the right, you can't go over there and that's all you, that's all you know. So we were doing a rather ordinary scene and Eugene was addressing a bunch of press for some movie, I forget which movie it was even, maybe it was for your consideration, I don't quite remember. And probably there were 10 takes, which is a long time because it wasn't because the actor wasn't doing something, it was the camera didn't move or somebody didn't stand up in the right place. And the amazing thing is, is when you improvise, you can almost always repeat yourself exactly. It's like, well, you could take an hour memorizing something, but if you said it once or twice, you kind of remember it because you, it's, you have a mo- you have muscle memory for it. It's, it's really interesting. So Eugene was being brilliant. And word for word was doing an eight or nine minute scene exactly as he had done at the time before and just as relaxed and wonderful. Uncanny. And all of a sudden we get to take seven or whatever it was and something pops into his head and he just says all these new things that he hadn't been saying before that weren't said, he didn't, I, you knew he was so relaxed this had nothing to do with thinking or trying to make something happen but something organically happened and it's the best of second city and sometimes it happens in chris's movies they're always good and wonderful and they're always entertaining. always wonderful but when you're in them you can see when somebody is having a genius moment which comes from not trying to do anything and it just happened and you don't know where it came from
0: gilbert in the scene and that was
1: fred he, you never knew where it came from
0: yeah inspired you, you, you know, you just... He's, he's somebody you can't take your eyes off in those movies. And, they're, and and those films are populated by a lot of wonderful performs.
1: Well, everybody like has a specialty. Everybody his,
0: has a specialty. But he's just... Yeah. Best in show, he's just electric.
1: You know, he did that entire performance in a day and a half. Oh. He came in, yeah. he talked, he talked, he talked, he went home.
0: Unbelievable. Gil, the, on the subject of improv, the scene in Beverly Hills Cop 2 with you and Eddie, how, how much were you improvising?
2: Uh, that totally... I mean, they just, the original script was, uh, you know, I have these parking tickets and uh, is there some way we could get over this unpleasantness? Well, how about $200? That's what it was. And each time, like when I auditioned for it, I just, see, that's what, that's what happened. It was like, I used to try to do the lines exact and want it perfect. And I just was playing with it. And every time Eddie and I did the scene together, we did it differently and just laughed and had fun.
1: Well, the thing is, it's called playing, you know, play the part. Yes. it doesn't mean you're supposed to sweat the part. It doesn't mean you're supposed to agonize the part. If you are playing, who knows what's going to happen? And yet pretty much the same thing sort of happens. And that's all you have to be.
2: Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: Here's another one from the, our friend, the rabbi Gilbert, Rabbi David Komarovsky. Ah. Mm. How was Bob uh, able to suppress laughter during Ed Begley's y- Yiddish soliloquy in a
1: mighty wind? Well, we, interesting. Had, we had Ed here. Yeah, well, Ed is another... Yeah. Amazing, one of a kind, amazing, wonderful, lovely man in acting and in life and everything else. It it, sometimes it's very easy not to laugh in these things. Um, If your character is sort of trying to get something from somebody else, or you know, you could actually be they're silly, but you could be in a scene. So that never impelled me to laugh in all those movies of which we probably made five. Including one that maybe was on TV. I don't even oh, really mascots, remember. Mascots was the one. That I don't was on remember TV too list. much. Yeah. Um, but, but you, but I, I, I'm, Let me see how I was going to say. It. I had a good. I was going to try to do a short answer for a change. So let me work my, <laughs> let me work my way back to a thing. Let's start with a question. What was the question?
0: How did you avoid laughing avoid when, when Lee was talking in yeah. Yiddish? Lars, the, the yeah. Swede.
1: So that was no problem. It was brilliant, and, and Ed is brilliant. But also, you really don't want to laugh at somebody because it ruins their take. But then, but then of course, that makes it a little impossible not to laugh. The only times I really laughed in the, in the Chris Guest movies were two. When it was very late and we'd work for 16 hours, ah. it can be funny to just see somebody pick up a spoon and it's like, oh, my God, I'm, I, I'm giggling and my lip is quivering. But really, Chris Guest doing Corky sometimes, when I was tired... I couldn't be around Corky. I could be around Corky fine when I wasn't tired, but as soon as I got tired, I just—it's—it's uh, it's unfair. I mean, it, it's his brilliant work, and you're tromping all over it. and You don't want that to happen.
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's wonderful. And uh, the, my dinner with Andre action figures. Yeah. Just just watched it again. Here's one for you. Uh, let's see. Uh, Janine Duffy says, "I don't have a question. Can you just tell Mr. Balaban I've always had a crush on him?"
1: Well, uh, can you send me her number?
0: <laughs> but not really. And Sean Demery, uh, did you really get the role in Close Encounters because you told Mr. Spielberg that you spoke fluent French?
1: Yes. They asked if they needed an actor who spoke French. My agent asked if I did, and I said yes. And I went to the audition, and they said, Say a few things in French. And I said, Il y avait beaucoup donné depuis que j'ai parlé français. Et si vous me donnez ce boulot, ce sera très difficile pour moi. It's been many years since I've studied French, and if you give me this job, it will be very difficult for me. I didn't lie, but I said (laughs) it in French.
0: (laughs) And they assumed from that you were fluent.
1: Yeah, and then then they said, talk a little bit more, and I recited The Ant and the Grasshopper, which I had memorized in eighth grade. (laughs) And then he gave me the script, and it didn't translate anything into French. I had to do it all on my own, so I went to Berlitz intensively for two months before the movie started.
0: I, I want to get that book, The, uh, the Close Encounters oh, Diary. It's
1: now called, that one can sometimes cost hundreds of dollars because yes, it was made on tissue. 460 paper. Dollars. And don't buy uh, it $460. <laughs> don't buy it. On, on, uh, but there, we did on it eBay. again for a British press called Spielberg, Truffaut, and Me. And uh, it's got some nicer pictures and it's a little better printed, and it doesn't cost $400.
0: Um, I also want to ask you quickly before we uh, before we let you get out of here. Uh, what what you got mistaken for Dreyfus a lot in those days?
1: Who knows? Yes, uh, <laughs> constantly. In fact, and we're still really good friends. But all we are is short Jewish, and our hair was receding at an early age. Other than that, there's nothing. So we're doing close encounters, and. Richard is on a radio program doing an interview about the Ku Klux Klan marching on the 4th of July parade because it's the centennial or the bicentennial, whatever it was. And he gets death threats because, you know, the Ku Klux Klan doesn't like it when people say they're bad, you know. So he's got a guard, like 12 guards and it's the big weekend coming up of the, of the actual parade and the guards are getting bigger and bigger and he's under lock and key and they have to be really careful. And I go to Julia Phillips, the producer, and I say, look, everybody on this set thinks I'm Richard Dreyfus because I have a beard and glasses when I look like he looked in Jaws, but he wasn't famous before Jaws. And, and they think of my beard and glasses, they think I'm Richard because in the movie now he doesn't have a beard and he doesn't have glasses. So could I please have some guards? And they said... Well, if Richard gets shot, the movie stops. If you get shot, nothing happens. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well,
0: there's some I guess there was some truth
1: to it. <laughs> Absolutely, neither of us could figure out. Now, Ron Rifkin and I are, you know, we're like Siamese twins, practically. People get so confused with us. And then they think Joel Grey is both of us. And we went somewhere once, and the three of us were there together, and people got really excited. But if you took the picture of three of us together, we don't look anything alike.
0: (laughs) I want to recommend two movies, Bob. We like to recommend, uh, during the course of these interviews, uh, movies come up. We're going to recommend Gosford Park to our listeners oh, that don't know it. Great! Uh, I have to recommend the documentary, the Hitchcock Truffaut documentary that you narrated, which is oh. one, which is wonderful. Yeah, he did your, a really good job. Your old friend, uh, we did Franco- K- Francois Truffaut.
1: Yeah, but did Kent Jones do that documentary? Kent Jones. Yeah, he's wonderful. Kent Jones,
0: and yeah. it's the film is terrific for film lovers like us, Gilbert. That's right up your alley. You love Hitchcock. Yes. Uh, when
1: francois Truffaut told me that when he was when when albert hitchcock asked asked him to write the book and to, you know do all that interviewing with him hitchcock didn't have anybody much who wanted to listen to him so he told his stories and, and like three months became six months and Truffaut said at one point they'd been working on it for like a year and he couldn't bear to say Alfred hitchcock i'm bored i can't do this any longer and he was so polite that he waited till the till Alfred hitchcock literally had nothing left to say wow doesn't <laughs> I mean it a, he's a genius, but everybody gets boring at some point, even, even me.
0: What's, what's, what's your favorite Hitchcock film? What's a, what's a Hitchcock film that if it comes on television late at night, your channel surfing, you, you, you have to stay through? You have to stay to the well, end.
1: I like a lot of the old British ones Foreign Correspondent. Oh, maybe. that's a great one. Uh, is that one he did twice? Did he do it in England and then he did it in oh, America? God, eventually?
0: The one with Joel McRae is the one I know.
1: That's the newer one. The
0: the Hollywood one. I'm
1: also very fond of North by Northwest for two reasons. One is because when I was a small child, I entered into the hotel, which I now forget its name, in Chicago, and it was Cary Grant filming a scene when he goes in and he's going to say, is Jesse Royce Landis, is that who the woman was in the thing? Yes, I
0: believe so. And,
1: And he's going into her hotel and he comes up to the bellman and he says two words, and he did it 50 times. And I stood behind a rope for 50 times and watched Cary Grant. And then it was another kind of like thing, like when I was at MGM, when I was little. And also there was a scene in that movie that there was a huge mistake in it. So I always get a huge kick out of watching North by Northwest. Oh, you is that the know. kid who
0: puts his- It's the kid yeah. who puts his fingers in yeah, his ears. Yeah, he anticipates the gunshot.
1: And, and they can't cut the scene out you know, because a lot of these things, as years go by, these things go away because they keep shortening the movies. But it's an, it's a, it's got an integral part of the plot and you can't remove it. So look for it. They're at the mountain. Yeah. The monuments yeah. are right outside the yeah. window. And a little kid looking in the wrong direction puts his hands in his ears because he knows that even Marie Saint is about to pretend to shoot Cary Grant. Yeah. And he's Gil, the noise is too bad.
2: Gil,
0: what's your favorite?
2: I'd have to stick with Psycho.
0: You stick with Psycho? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I like Strangers on a Train. Oh, that—that's
0: a great one. Maybe I'm in the minority there, and I like um, what's the one with Joseph Cotton as the uh, as a shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us quickly before we let you run, Bob. You have uh, you've worked with Bill Murray a couple of times on yes. the Wes Anderson pictures, and yes, also Monument It's great, Man. great working with him, Yes, and you guys have become uh, you guys have become shall I say a uh, uh, a little bromance.
1: You've, well, you've become I, buds. He's a great guy, and he's a lot of fun to be with. And we happen to have spent. A rather large amount of time together, occasionally during these Wes Anderson movies. Not in the movie necessarily, but mm-hmm. you know, just because we're in the same hotel and we. It's and and he taught me how to putt well. He taught you how to putt <laughs> really well. <laughs> he doesn't sleep much, and uh, <laughs> if you put a ruler on the ground, it's a three foot putt, and you got a little sort of shot glass at the end of the thing, you have to be able to putt so the ball stays on the ruler all three feet and ends up in the cup. And if you can do it 10 times in a row, then you can putt. And it's true.
0: That's valuable information.
1: You could (laughs) never get it anywhere else.
0: I saw saw an interview. Somebody was saying that uh, there's a little bit of... uh, of Truffaut I think in some of those uh, Wes Anderson pictures. a little bit I in, always a little thought
1: Moonrise Moon Kingdom. Kingdom. Moon Kingdom the relationship between yeah, the kids and the, and the stuff with the parents it doesn't look like Truffaut and it's very formal shot yeah. the way it's done and I thought he taps into humanity in a way that Francois did beautifully.
0: You ever very see similar. a movie called The Little Fugitive?
1: Oh my god yes yeah was That's that made favorite. in Chicago? I favorite can't of Gilbert's. No, here in oh, Coney no. Island. Yeah, oh, they went to Coney was... Island, but yes, no. But I saw it in Chicago. That's why I thought it's the little kid who runs away. It's wonderful. Yeah,
2: and Truffaut loved
0: that film.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: all the French New Wave. What do you want to plug bob is there another season are you in another season of the politician there's another wes anderson movie coming out the there's french a wes dispatch. anderson
1: movie called the french dispatch that's great that has gotten its uh release screwed up because of COVID 19 but i think it's coming out in the fall or some version it's wonderful it's beautiful henry winkler and i are in it uh joined at the hip and our little part we're, we're we're brothers that's all i'll say we're not supposed to talk about the movie too much we love henry he's yes yeah. me too
0: he's been here and and, uh, and
1: I, did a, I did a second season of a series called Condor, and then the network collapsed. It was for something called Direct TV, the Audience Network, which no longer exists. But it was bought by HBO, HBO, with a name attached to it, like HBO Weird or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. So it might come out one day. And I loved it because in the first season, I'm this maniacal, horrible, political person as, as often as might want. Um, and in, in the second season, I had a girlfriend and fell madly in love, and then get killed at the end of the season. So I, it was a, it was a big change.
0: <laughs> did you end up in a coma on the politician?
1: I don't end up in a coma, but I had a very long coma that lasted for <laughs> oh, for like oh, hey. seven shooting days. <laughs> oh, but I did a lot when I was awake. I did a lot, and and after my coma, I did a lot. But but I did a lot of coma acting. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, it, the script literally said, a tear comes out of his right eye. And I was so bored that I thought, okay, I'm going to make a tear come out of my right eye. But I could only do it three times. After three times, I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Will
0: you write more children's books.
1: I might. I'm trying to sell the series McGrawl uh, may, may have another life because it did very nicely, but it only sold a couple of million copies and they need it literally to sell 10 or 15 before they advertise. So we're, we're trying to get somebody else to buy it and get a better cover.
0: You are busy. I've heard you say, "Ad, you have ADD, and you can't sit still for very." You need to be involved in a. This lot is of
1: true, things.
0: and you're you're succeeding.
1: Well, the, the COVID for me. If you ask me, how are you doing with the COVID? Yeah, it's it's horrible. It shouldn't be there. It's, what else? What else can we say? Who who wants there to be people dying? Uh, but for me, I've had to sit still, and I've finished a few projects that I've been intending to get involved with, <laughs> and and you know, so that that there's always everything has. Not everything, but there, you know, there's always a a little bright corner to, to everything. And for me, sitting still has been kind of good. How about you, Gilbert? What, what do you are you, are you finding your life changed uh, in any positive ways?
2: Well, what's what I like is um, well, number one, finding that I haven't changed that much. Like I sit mindlessly in front of the TV set. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never socialized before all that much, and I'm not socializing <laughs> That's now. funny.
1: So nothing's yeah. changed.
2: Yeah, yeah. So my life is pretty much the same. Although I don't have to rush to the airport, pack a bag and rush to the airport.
1: You may never day. have to do that again.
2: Oh, maybe. You
0: know, Gil, you may have to write some children's books. Yeah. Like Bob. Yeah. F- find, find some new outlet. Bob, you are the kind of guest that obviously we could do hours and hours with, as you predicted at the oh, beginning.
1: That's the nice way of putting it. No, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get to Frankenheimer or Sidney Pollack or uh-huh. Ken Russell and altered states or or, or Wes 20, Anderson. Or, or well, we touched a little bit about yeah, Wes Anderson. we did. We did. Uh, and uh, or or uh,
1: or 2010 or
0: or so many of the other things that you've done. So well, maybe that's what
1: happens when you're around a lot.
0: Maybe you'll come back and play with us another time.
1: I would love that. I had a great time. You guys are a wonderful trio. uh, And it's fun. So thank you. I'm so glad. I'm so
0: glad you had fun. Gil, anything else you want to ask this man? Or you want to talk more about doctor
2: visits? Uh, yeah, well, we'll have to next time we meet each other at a doctor's office.
1: One of my hearing aids got ripped off when I took my COVID-19 mask off. Yeah. It got twisted in my mask, and I tore my mask off, and it went into a bush, and I could never get it back. So I'm wearing one. <laughs> one my, on my right ear, I have a $4,000 hearing aid. In my left ear, I have a $75 hearing aid my wife found on the back of a magazine, and it works just as well. <laughs> Oh, I got one last one, Bob. Did oh. you Did you know
0: Michael Hitchcock uh, was going to slap you in the head? In no, God bit? no.
1: I only knew <laughs> that he was getting more and more irritated with me, and it was—he's so much fun to work with. We had two days where the script said Bob irritates Michael, and that's what it was. <laughs> that's a
0: great moment. It was it really funny. Genuinely and you know what? shocked
1: when I saw the movie. I thought when it happened i thought he had struck me really hard on the head and i thought i had screamed and you see the movie it's like oh, nah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i mean for our listeners we've done 300 and what now gil 316 shows
1: and this so, could be one, three, this, this adds up to the same amount of time well, that the 316 we, shows took. This is normal length for us. Oh, okay. we, we had
0: Begley, we had McKean was was here, so by now people must have okay. seen the Christopher Guest movies. Uh, and Gilbert still hasn't seen it Spinal Tap, so shame no. on him.
1: <laughs> but Well, it's worth waiting for. Worth I saw a documentary for. last night you must see called The Painter and the Thief. It's kind of amazing and strange and weird the and wonderful. The Painter and the Thief? Yes. It okay. doesn't sound and, promising, but it is. Okay.
2: Funny thing with Christopher Guest movies, it's like they're comedies bordering on tragedies. They are tragic. Yeah, yes. like, Porky is a tragic figure.
1: Well, if you saw all the footage, well, well in the beginning, Chris shot much, much more, uh, and as the movies went on, he realized he didn't want to be stuck in the cutting room having two years of cutting. So he cuts. He started, and, you know, adhering a little closer to the story. But in the beginning, some of these movies could have gone in many directions, uh, and it would be brilliantly fun to see them re-edited and see how many movies you could make from them, but he, he would go mad.
0: I can imagine. But Gilbert, I think you nailed it. I was watching Guffman and A Mighty Wind. This weekend, and I was thinking, these are these are ultimately set characters who find themselves in very sad situations. Well, the relationship
1: between Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, which, beautiful, yeah, and, and they they do in real life adore each other, not beautiful. romantically, but they do adore each other, and and you could have made that into Camille practically, absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah it's like every one of the characters is like in a dream world. Like. Yeah. there
1: is a scene from that movie that never made it into the movie in which. I think Jane Lynch and Michael Hitchcock and John Michael Higgins do a 10-minute take. They did it once. It was perfection. They didn't do any coverage. It never ended up in the movie. No one ever mentioned it again. Wow. And in it, each of them is trying to pick up the other one, and you can't figure out who's who's the initiator and who's the catcher. It's the best 10 minutes of improvising I've ever seen. Try to get, maybe, maybe if Chris is ever on the show, he'll, you can squeeze it out of him.
0: Okay, we'll beg him. We'll, we'll see if we can get him on first. Yeah, Bob, this was a thrill.
1: Great to see you all,
0: a thank lot, you. A lot of fun, He's, Gil's gonna sign off, don't
2: jump away. Okay, and I, and I should say, I, this, this is neuroses and it'll be cut out of the show. But I I refer to Bye Bye Braverman as a lesser film. And that doesn't mean I'm putting it down. It means it's a film that didn't do great.
1: Well, some of the best movies, you don't notice them for so long. And then you go, why wasn't everybody talking about this one? I never went to even bother to see it. And it's some of the best work. Yeah. Does that. Yeah. And, you know, things are popular in different time periods sometimes that weren't popular before.
0: You want to say goodbye to this man, Gil? Oh, I'd love to. Bob, we don't goodbye, want to let everybody. you go. We're and having, I, I, we're I, having I, I, too will, much fun. I look fun. back
1: very fondly on the day that we encountered each other at Therese Derelaine, and I hope we do again not there.
0: <laughs> and I hope to get to meet you in person when all this is over, Bob. Well,
1: uh, if you're very lucky, we could make that happen. <laughs>
2: I'm,
0: fe- I'm feeling lucky.
2: <laughs> and... I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. And we've been talking to the man who blew John Voight.
1: <laughs> well, well, you should say the Midnight Cowboy, not yes, actually John yes. Voight. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
2: Not
0: quite it, the man who Gilbert, shot Liberty Valance.
1: If I ever have a podcast, will you be on it? Can I make uh, you be on uh, it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He owes you now.
2: Yeah. Yes, yes.
1: Okay, I've got it. Yeah. I have a witness.
2: Yeah, he blew him in the movie. He didn't actually. <laughs> although John Voight's a great actor, and it wouldn't be <laughs> such a terrible. <laughs> and a handsome fellow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking to the very
1: talented Bob Palaban.
0: Bob, thank you so much for indulging our madness.
1: It was great, Frank. Thank you, and thank you, Gilbert. And Thank you, Dara, wherever you are. Dara, is Dara, but I call her Dara. Thank you, everybody. Excellent. Beautiful.
2: Excellent. As I travel down the back roads of this home I love so much,
3: every carpenter and cowboy, every lame man on a garage, they're all talking about a feeling, about a taste that's in the air. They're all talking about this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere. Oh, of mighty wind's are flowing it's kinking up the sand. It's blowing out a message to every woman, child and man. Yes, some mighty winds are blowing across the land and across the sea. It's blowing peace and freedom. It's blowing equality. From a lighthouse in Bar Harbor to a bridge called Golden Gates. From a trawler down in Shreveport to the shore of one great lake, there's a star on the horizon and it's burning like a flare. It's lighting up this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere. Oh, a mighty wind's are blowing It's kicking up the sand it's blowing out a message to every woman, child and man. Yes, some mighty wind's are blowing Cross the land and cross the sea It's blowing peace and freedom It's blowing equality When the blind man sees the picture When the deaf man hears the word When the fisherman stops fishing When the hunter spares the bird We'll still hear the wondrous story Of a world where people blowing it's kicking up the sand it's blowing out a message to every woman child and man Everyone. yes some mighty winds are blowing across the land and cross the sea it's blowing peace and freedom it's blowing equality yes it's blowing peace and freedom it's blowing you and me